everyone, and welcome to the No to Grow podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ivan Khan, and I'll be breaking down topics around education, growth, and culture with the intention to help your own growth journeys. For those not familiar with our hosting organization, Constitutorial, I serve as a CEO there, and we serve kids K-12 in supplemental education centers throughout New York City. One of the unique privileges of my work is the opportunity to really know the various communities that our team serves and discover the various challenges that students face within themselves, their families, and overall community systems. Today I'm joined by a very, very special guest, Dr. Noor Ali. Dr. Noor is, uh, grew up in many, many parts of the world, Bangladesh, Queens, Bronx Science, back to Bangladesh, back to New York and Tampa. She has a fantastic Instagram following with over 4,000 followers at Dr. Noor US Health. And more importantly, she's my baby cousin. So Dr. Noor, welcome to the Know to Grow podcast. Congratulations on the milestone. We had a chance to attend your baby shower this past week. How are you feeling? You're the first pregnant person on the show that we're aware of. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. First of all, I want to say thank you. I'm an avid listener of the Know to Grow podcast. Huge fan. I've been listening from episode one. I listen to it all the time. And I remember in the first few episodes, I was like, damn, I would love to be on this show. And here I am. So definitely feel like a celebrity. So thank you so much for having me. Um, the baby's doing well. I'm doing well. As you see, I've got my little comfort set up here. Um, so thank you so much again for having me. You got the setups. You got the setups. Oh, you're just saying all that nice shit because you're my cousin. No, you're just listening. No. You know, not everyone in the family listens to the show. I kind of try to pick up on it and like thoughts <laughs> and like, so are you listening to anything new lately? Have you grown recently? And everyone's like, no, what are you talking about? I was like, oh, no, <laughs> nothing. But whenever we talk, whether we're texting, I'm going to be visiting you next month down in Tampa. How's, you know, like we're, we're talking about the show and, you know, I just came to realize that, oh my gosh, you, you got this whole brand going on with your, with your IG page. You got mm-hmm. more than 4,000 followers. Let's start there a little bit. Mm-hmm. What, it, you know, what's the focus of your Instagram page and we'll go, we'll start with your childhood after that. Yeah, sure. So my Instagram page, again, the handle is um, Health. That's Health. Um, what I do is I advise uh, mainly self-employed professionals, startups, small business owners on their health insurance options. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that, you know, uh, after the uh, advent of Obamacare and the ACA, it helped a lot of people. But there is a population of people that were kind of harmed by it. In fact, um, those that make too much money, uh, over 400 percent of the federal poverty level, really struggle with their options with health insurance. So that's the part, the, the, the market or the population that I try to target and help them out with their alternative health insurance options, mainly on the private market. So you're a doctor plus an MPH, similar backgrounds. Yes. I had a chance to work in healthcare coverage for employers around the time of the Affordable Care Act. And I'm glad that you weren't calling it Obamacare because it's a politicized term. Sure. So while it helped expand access for many, many groups, it did make it even, it, it that challenge still remained for solo practitioners. So if you're a startup out there, you got your whole crew starting, you got your whole uh, your firm starting, how are you going to get, you know, coverage for yourself or for, you know, teammates if your small organization starts to grow? Right. So that's what you're up to right now. Tell us about your childhood a little bit. I, you know, growing up, I had a chance to you know, hear about you for the first six, seven years because your dad showed up on uh, <laughs> Linden Boulevard. It was May 89, like a month after you were born. 
None of us expected the visit or, or, or him to be here. He just showed up. He's like, yes, yeah. what, my I'm here. We're like, what the freak? <laughs> oh, snap. And for anyone in my family who's ever met Borshaki's dad, Tunwama, he's an avid musician. He's done a lot of music with some of the big legends in Bangladesh from our heyday. So tell us what life was growing up your first seven years without your dad around and then what was like moving over to the States. For a lot of non-South Asian listeners, they've never even heard of this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So just like you guys were surprised having my dad show up at your doorstep, we we were surprised to have my dad kind of missing from our life. So that that was a surprise as well. Um, he did what he had to do. You know the struggles that all our parents went through to sacrifice and do what he had to do for our family. Um, so growing up um, from age, he left when I was three months old. My mom and I were in Bangladesh. Um, he he immigrated to America. Uh, I grew up pretty much without a father, a childhood without a father. So my biggest influence became my, my late grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, who was an anesthesiologist. And I, I, everything I feel like who I am today is a reflection of who he is, um, his habits, his, uh, you know, his nurturing, his love and passion for reading, um, you know, waking up early, all, all the, the, um, the proverbs he taught me. So he was a huge influence in my life in my dad's absence. So like you said, my dad's a rock star. He's a musician. You know, he's all about that, the social life. Uh, and I'm huge on education. So that disparity really came from, uh, you know, my dad not being here and uh, my grandfather kind of taking that role. So that's your dada, right? Yes, my dada. And that's my major nana. So I was like, I didn't realize that he was an anesthesia. I remember yeah. you hearing, oh, you have a nana and it was a doctor yes. and they live in Malibok. And I remember visiting, uh, you know, major nana when he was uh, you know, in the hospital mm-hmm. much, much later. So that that's pretty common for a lot of South Asian folks who've, who've made that migration where you didn't get a chance to be raised by dad. There are many, many periods in my childhood where I did not have my dad around for at least a year and a half mm-hmm. or eight months here because we were moving back and forth from the States to Bangladesh, and I had a lot of my grandfather. My earliest memories of adults were my grandfather, uh, my dada, my nani. So what, did your love for you know becoming a doctor start there? Did you know you are going to come back to the States? Tell us about that transition to the States and your childhood in Queens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's a, that's a big uh, difference I noticed that, you know, a lot of, you know, kids in the South Asian community, they have their parents kind of pushing them or influencing them. Oh, this is what you have to be. You have to go into medicine. My parents were the complete opposite. They never told me, you know, education. They never pushed me for education. They never pushed me for medicine. But I knew that I wanted to be a physician, uh, specifically a clinician, since I was 10 years old. And that mm-hmm. has never changed to this day. It's, it's who I am. It's who I wanted to be. And that really drove, you know, my career, my path, um, every piece of education I sought out to this day. And that absolutely had everything to do with my grandfather. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when I immigrated and, and no, I really did, didn't know how things were going to be. You know, obviously we had the intent of having our family together. Uh, so I came over to the States in 1995 and I didn't know a word of English, you know, so that was challenge number one, you know, assimilating yeah. to a new culture. Yeah. Um, but but that love and passion for medicine that was deep rooted from Bangladesh, from, you know, being around my grandfather all the time, that has always been a constant in my life. So I remember in 95, I was probably just starting off at Bronx Science then. So, you know, you, you got here when you were like six. Yeah. Uh, where'd you guys post up? Astoria, 36th Ave? Yeah, Astoria, 31 Avenue, 23rd Street on the corner. That's, you know, the first home I moved into. Uh, never left then, just like a lot of uh, immigrants uh, who come into the state. So that's where I'm from. My my subway station was either Broadway or 30th Avenue, N&W. Depending on the mood. Depending, like, yeah. Past my house Which way? <laughs> exactly. Which way do I walk? Yeah. So you, you, you grew up in Queens in the mid-90s, like a lot of a lot of our listeners. 
Uh, you ended up in Bronx Science, yes. which uh, for those listeners outside, it's probably the greatest high school in the goddamn world. That's thank, right, thank you guys. Thank you to other heads. Please write eight, that in stone. Eight Nobel Prize laureates. What was that experience like? And did you know you were, you know, going to be making a transition back to another country when while you were at Bronx Science? Um, no, I did not know when I ta- at the time I got accepted, but going to Bronx Science was a very easy decision. Um, at that time, there were three specialized high schools. It got accepted into all three. But again, knowing that I, I medicine is what I wanted to pursue and, and Bronx Science being a more science-focused um, high school that produced more um, healthcare professionals or science background you know, professionals, you know, my family and I, we, that was our first choice. This is where we want to go. This is where I, I wanted to end up. So you're graduating, you're 18, yeah, and you know your family's about to move back. Yes. You got two decisions. You could either stay back and try to stay back with Kalas and uncles and aunts and all this other stuff, maybe even without my family, or you can actually save a few years, go back home, enroll into medical school there. Yep. Rather than do the full eight years in the States, mm-hmm. you could do the five-year bit mm-hmm. at home. So what was that decision like for you? And tell us about that journey back to your homeland, our homeland at age 18. Yeah. Um, again, a very, very difficult time for me um, in my life. I had a rough relationship, I remember, with my parents at the time because, you know, my life was in America. This is, you know, once I moved here, this is where all my friends were. This is all I knew. So it was very hard for me to accept that, okay, now we have to move back uh, to Bangladesh. And there was so many factors that went into that decision-making process. My grandfather passed away. Uh, no one really to take care of my grandmother. And, and my dad was the one who t- stood up and took that responsibility amongst his brothers and sisters, said, okay, I- I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to you know, take care of my mom. Uh, and, and us as his family had to support that decision. Um, so, so that's the, the cultural aspect of that that was difficult. But the medicine aspect was super duper easy. Again, I knew I wanted to do medicine. I didn't see a point of doing a four-year undergrad where I had to discover, uh, you know, or tr- test out some passions. I knew that I wanted to go to med school. So I graduated Bronx Science in 2007. I was 18 years old. By the end of the year, I was already enrolled in a medical school <clears throat> in Bangladesh. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. A lot of your journey overlaps with mine in the fact that I went to Bronx Science. You know, I pursued a, a combined medical program right out of high school. You pursued a medical school right out of high school. Mm-hmm. The other overlap is that when our grandparents got sick or passed away, it fell upon our dads. Yeah. On, uh, on you know, you know, you're from my mom's side, so when it, when mama, it you know, fell on him to take more of the lead to to fill that void that you know your dad had left. Yeah. In my own household, when I was in fifth grade, I grew up here my whole life, and it was like when my 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 daddy died, my dad's the first thing was as soon as we got our green card, we're going back to take care of Dada, and that was the reason why I moved back to Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And it was actually attending Bronx Science or a specialized high school, so my dad could help me become a doctor. That brought my family back here. That led to consultorial. It led to so many changes in my academic trajectory of the community. Tell, take us through med school and abroad. Tell us some of the challenges. Tell us some of the incredible clinical advantages. So a little compare and contrast from some of the you know classmates that followed the similar pathways back here. And we'll go into our first break. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So medical school abroad, very, very, very different from here. Um, again, I went right in right after high school. I didn't have that little transition period of undergrad to experience or find myself or find passions. It was like high school, medical school, accelerated program, boom. 
Um, and where I went to medical school, it was uh, Kumudini Women's Medical College. It was in a very rural area of Tangail. So I was away from the city. If you guys Google Earth it, you'll find that it's uh, there's just literally, literally nothing around there. So the modes of transportation we're using. Um, cow. Bonus, yeah, right? yeah. Like you take a cow to, to buy your groceries, you know. You ride, you ride a cow or the cow the cow pulls a carriage? A cow carriage. Cow carriage. Similar. Yeah, I, can, I guess that's the closest thing. And you're riding on the back of it. Yeah, you're riding on the back, the back of, of the it. Carriage. Yeah. Okay, so how, okay, so for reference points, let's talk about some major cities. How yes. far away is it from Taka? It's 60 miles away from Taka. Uh, given the traffic there, it took me anywhere from five to six hours to visit home on the weekends, which I would do once a month. Once a month, five to six hour trip yes. through the roads or the rural areas Yep. to reach the uh, what the, what's the closest major city? It would be Taka City. Would be Taka but, city. Yeah. And you need multiple modes of transport. So I would have to take that cow thingy or walk on foot to a, a, a driving. There was no bus stop there. So there would be a, a bus going, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 miles per hour with a broken speedometer on the highway. I'd have to literally jump on and jump off because they're not going to so stop. So you thought you. taking the N yeah. the four train was fucked up, took all the way all the wrong yeah. signs of the high schooler. And then you're like, ah, oh, shit. This yep. is. So my commute, yeah, so. it went from N to six all the way up to Bronx to taking a cow to a moving bus oh in gosh. the middle of nowhere. So it's been a pleasure to have you on so far. It's about time for our first break. To all the listeners, Health and Life with Dr. Noor Us Us Health. We will be right back after this break. Yeah, Welcome back to the Middle Girl Podcast. You are listening to Health and Life with Dr. Noor U.S. Health. Before we left for our break, Dr. Noor was telling us about her experiences going to medical school abroad, particularly in a rural setting. When you kept in touch with your friends who were pursuing similar pathways of pre-med and taking orgo and taking their MCATs and going through the medical school process, what were some compare and contrast you, you heard about through the experiences as a medical student and a clinician in Bangladesh to the opportunities you were getting here? Take us through it. Yeah. So uh, there's a difference in, in the entr entrance, entrance process to medical school um, in the States versus what I did. So mm. uh, at the time when I went in, there was a different entrance exam for each school that you applied for. Um, for well, now now it's more standardized, similar to the MCAT. Uh, but my my experiences were more the clinical aspect of it itself, you know, really third year onwards when I was working with patients more. Um, so the, the patient population that I work with were very, very, very poor. And I'm talking, they were annual, excuse me, monthly household incomes of less than a dollar a month. So not only, you know, they were lacking education, they were lacking the financial stability. Um, so not only that aspect, these patients would come to the hospital knocking on death's door, really, because they didn't have the means or, or, or the, the knowledge, really, to see. So you care. saw a lot of critical patients at, in, in, um, already in a very, like, ICU critical condition. Absolutely. Also, because the hospital that I worked in, Kumudini Hospital, um, there it, it was at that time it was only, the only hospital in a seventy-five mile radius, uh, and then later on in a fifty-mile radius. So we attracted a lot of a lot of patients, but the the patient population themselves were just of a, of a category that really you know it was difficult to help. 
Um, so, so this so, is like straight out of the boards. It's yeah. like, oh, God yeah. forbid, it's a stroke patient case. Yeah. How are you going to make it on time? You got a 90 minute window for this and you got a couple of extra hours for that. Yeah. And so that those types of situations, you'd, you'd see deterioration yeah. or, or death just because of lack of transportation access. Yeah. And, and on a daily basis, that was my life. So, so we, I had to learn how to, because of, of the lack of availability of not only technology, tests and imaging, um, my patients couldn't afford more than a test at, at the very, at the very most. So I had to learn how to diagnose with my hands and heal with my mind, which I found to, now I realize more how much of a powerful skill that is that I learned, um, and really compare and contrast Eastern and Western medicine. Um, so for example, I can palpate a liver and tell you the degree of cirrhosis. I can visually assess um, the stage of a cataract without any instruments. Um, I know how to gauge a hemoglobin level yeah, with yeah, just by ever, inspection. Have you ever like mess around and like test it out on the like with your colleagues back here? You're like, oh, absolutely. I could palpate it. You can MRI it. <laughs> Let's let's play some. Let's play. Uh, yeah, all the time, all the time. Like like hypothyroidism, I can diagnose a hypothyroid case without a single test, just by across just looking the room. across the room, just with a handshake, or just looking at you. Yeah. This little call, like yo, I see you, like yep. I got you. So, this is this is pretty pretty um, you know revealing. Having gone through not anything similar, but the overlap is being in clinical settings in underserved environments like Harlem. Flatbush, Brooklyn, and realizing that the emergency room is oftentimes like their first, middle, and ultimate line of care. And when, when, when you compare it to neighborhoods like, you know, like Long Island or Westchester sure. County, it, it was very different for us to realize that there's a whole world out there, clinical experience to what the imaging can tell you. And while there's a great need for confirmation medicine, so people have been sued and you know, prevent medical error, of course, a lot of it does come down to just how great your clinical skills are. Yes. I need to take the conversation to a very serious note. In 2013, you know, Bangladesh, in, you know, went through a tragedy in the Rana Plaza disaster. Uh, please take us through what the Rana Plaza disaster is for any non-Bangladeshis. It was cover of Time magazine, especially one of their images for pretty much the entire year, all the way to, you know, the final episodes or final editions. And how were you involved in the Rana Plaza aftermath? Please take us through that. Yeah, the, oh, so it was so, it's emotion inducing. It's a very, it's, it's a, tra it's a true tra tragedy. The Rana Plaza tragedy in 2013 took place in Shavar area of Dhaka. Um, and what happened there was it was a garments factory that collapsed it collapsed without any warning. It collapsed with, you know, with, with zero preparation. The building itself was not equipped to handle, um, you, you know, the, the, the number of people that were working there, the garments workers there. There was no exit strategy. Um, and as a result, hundreds, uh, the, I mean, official reports say hundreds, but I've, I've been there with my own eyes and I've seen thousands <coughs> uh, people die trapped in the rubble. Um, and at that time, I was, it was 2013, I just finished my final boards for medical school and I was, uh, you know, waiting for my final degree conferral. So I, w I was in a provisional state. So I considered, you know, I didn't get my results yet, but I considered myself a doctor. Like I'm, you know, a yeah, provisionally finished, licensed. I, yeah, yeah, I finished the schooling. I got the right. degree. I'm just in the process just of completing my paperwork. license yeah. paperwork to come back in the mail. Yeah. So where are you when you hear something just went down? Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, over here, we're all like, we all knew where we all remember where we were on 9-11. Right. So where were you when you heard the news about Rana yeah. Plaza? And 
what were what were your first immediate steps? Take yep. us through that. So I, w- I happened to be home because I just finished my board. So I came back home in Taka. I saw it on the news. And I didn't think I, it wasn't a choice of, of what do I do now? Like, what, what are my responsibilities or duties as a young doctor, as a young professional? Uh, how can I help? You know, I, I want to do something to help. I immediately called up every single doctor friend that I had in the area. And we said, I said, we're going there. We're going there to help. And there was no real plan or, or strategy for search and rescue. It was, it was like whatever anyone is doing, you know, they can do. Um, and because of you know the high risk situation, the you know the, the the situation, there was no transportation to reach there. But we didn't care. We we just went there. We went as far as we could, and then we had to walk about two miles um, to the actual site. And when when I got there, it was it was a mess. So right now, when you're home, you're yes. in Taka, or you're by the medical college. I'm in Taka. I'm so in Taka. you're in Taka. You know that it's like. 25, 30 miles right yes. outside, like this, like, right. like the city, like the actual actual borders, and, yes. you're, and you're and you're traveling out there. And now you got two miles, got to get out. You got to start walking because it's an emergency. It's there's a yeah. gridlock. Yeah. So you guys are walking. We were walking, and, and even that that 20, 30 miles to get there, I had to travel. Um, it, it's really hard to describe those trucks that carry animals with you know cows and chickens yeah. to transport those. I got on the on the back of one of those to get as close to the site as possible, just to get there and then walk the rest of the way. Um, so really anything I, I could to just get there. And my parents were very, very concerned. Yeah. I didn't really ask anyone's permission. I said, you know what? Someone's got to do something. There's no plan here. People are trapped under rubble. We got to get them out. I'm, I'm just going to go and figure shit out. Yeah. Um, I remember my parents being very concerned, but they understood. They understood where I was coming from. So they didn't, they didn't stop me. Um, so I get there, you know, walk two miles there. And, and what, what I saw or what I experienced, I still remember the first, it was, There's really no way to get into the building other than just some makeshift ladders that were just propped up against the rubble. And I was a woman and one of the firefighters were concerned and they said, and then I'll never forget this because they said, we're concerned, you, you don't go there. Your life is more valuable as a young doctor than the people trapped in there. And I looked at him and I was like, what are you saying right now? You know, I could not understand his perspective at, at the time and he could not understand mine. So they're like, we need your expertise to help as many, save as many people when we have light back or when we have a little bit more technology to right, help right. remove something. But we need you alive and healthy. We need you alive and healthy to help treat them when we can get them out. Yeah. But my perspective was like, I got to do something now. I yeah. got to do something as soon as I, as I could. And I so I pushed him to the side and I went up the ladder. There was an adjacent building that they created a hole to access the, you know, the pile of rubble. Yeah. And I mean, what I saw inside, there were just, you know, bodies piled on top of bodies. Every step you take, you know, you're you know, I accidentally stepped on a body and, you know, you turn to the right, you turn to the left, you see a body part in that, you know, you hear a cry, you want to follow it. And then you find out it's just an arm. It's not an entire body. You know, it was an extremely traumatic experience. And I did what I could to kind and we had no instruments. We had no, we had nothing. You want to help some, you know, someone come out, you don't have the equipment to do it. You want to help someone relieve pain because one of their, their arms are trapped. I don't have you know, I have a medication. medication. I have a lidocaine, but I don't have a syringe to, to apply the, the lidocaine. Yeah. Um, the closest medical college there was Inam Medical College okay. in Shavar. So what we did was we had ambulances. Whoever we could rescue, we would just shuttle them back and forth. So I was going back and forth between the site and the medical college just to do whatever we could. Wow. Yeah. How many <clears throat> days did you 
get to visit? How long? I mean, clearly you got there pretty early within the first several hours yes. as as resources and rescue recoveries setting themselves up. So how many times did you get to go back in that in that in the in the, the first few weeks? Um, just the first two days, and by that time we had most of you know the people that we could rescue out. Um, and the I think up to the first the first two weeks, the the last person last person alive rescued was was by the end of the, the second week. Um, so I was there for the first two days. How long did it like? That will probably stay with you forever. Yeah. Like the trauma of that. Yes. So Touching on that, how long did it take you to? get through it as a, as a medical as a medic in the community you see so much shit you're mm-hmm. like all right you're used to it you're used to seeing even you know elderly people or children in in, in places of pain but how long did that because that wasn't in a medical setting it was no it was just not at all a, a, a up trash. it was completely completely unexpected and um and it was before i was really a licensed practitioner so it was yeah. before i started really working as a physician um so it, I, I definitely was not prepared for it. It was actually one of my colleagues who noticed that I was very, very, very traumatized and actually depressed after that episode. And I didn't really recognize it myself. Um, and some some of the things that would happen was, you know, I would try to sleep or take a nap, but the slightest sound would wake me. And I would just see, you know, visualize, you know, bodies under my feet, you know, bodies that I couldn't help trapped in the rubble. Um, so it was another colleague who recognized and said that, hey, you're you're traumatized, you're depressed by this. Maybe you should consider taking some medication um, or something. Um, so, so that was rough. So how long do you think? How long do you remember it taking for you to go through that journey of, of that adjustment of facing the trauma and you know coming to terms with it, accepting yeah. it, registering it, yeah. digesting it, all of it. I think three weeks, the first three weeks, I was completely abnormal. I was completely jarred. And the way I dealt with it at the time, I didn't recognize, you know, the changes that were taking place in my mood. So other people did. The way I I dealt with that is I wrote. When I have a strong emotion, I find myself to be uh, a very good creative writer. So I wrote about my experience and that helped me and I published it. Uh, And then it took me, I would say, at least another three months before I could kind of not visualize the trauma, you know, not have every single thing in my day-to-day life connect back to that incident. Man. If we fast forward, what's next? What What did you guys do after that? Yeah, so we actually, um, after all the, the rubble was cleaned up and we, we formed a coalition, um, and at that time there was a lot of political strife, as there always is in, in uh, countries like Bangladesh, but... Um, the no one really took responsibility for the incident and in fact they declined international aid so we formed little coalitions you know people who wanted to help and do the right thing so what we did was i was part of another group that um just followed up with the survivors and helped them any way they could with um counseling with with uh, financial support with kind of rehabilitation for their families um, and I did a bit of that work. I was part of a team for another hour, for, excuse me, another year following the incident. So over time, your professional life and your personal life are becoming aligned. Yeah. You're, you know, coming back to the States and you, you see that there's, there's more to grow. 
not just through your clinical experiences, but more in the public health sphere. And that's something that I went through also. Yes. Let's hear a little bit about your public health experience before we go to our final break uh, for the culture section. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So public health, I happen to do a ton of work in, in the public health sector when I was living in Bangladesh, just because the opportunities there were so great. Um, in fact, one of my, my biggest achievements in my life was I started this community project called uh, Improving Maternal Health, uh, which was using Junior Chambers International, JCI, as a platform. It was a two-year community health project where I set up um, free antenatal camps in uh, different slum areas of all over Dhaka City. And it was hugely successful. It was recognized by the United Nations in the 2014 uh, World Summit. Um, and it was so really... This is yeah. through where? Uh, this is just a project I started on my own. It was an extracurricular activity. So nothing to do with your public health? Nothing to do with uh, school or public health because I was in medical school uh, at the time. So, so I would that's not, that could have been a bridge. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would get like a, a day off a month, you know, being part of an accelerated med program. You really don't have a lot of time off or downtime to do anything. But I would take that day to pre-plan these camps and go all over slums uh, and really serve that population of, of pregnant women who have very limited access to care. Um, so that was a hugely successful project. I loved doing it. Um, I had guests from all over the world. I, I developed a lot of connections and stuff. Uh, but what I, what I realized at the end of that project was that I did not really have a formal public health education to kind of maximize or optimize uh, my goals, objectives, and outcomes for that project. So that's what really led me to pursue a degree in public health was to really formalize my experience and learn proper research methodology and how I could have closed out that project to, to maybe result in, in, in a paper or a publishment, which at that time I didn't have the knowledge or skills to do. So we're definitely going to have more episodes later on the field of public health. Uh, I have given my public health from downstate. Nipa at home has hers from... Columbia, um, and we there's a whole bunch of different fields that you can do within it. Take us quickly before our final break where you did your public health, what that experience was like, and then we'll talk a little bit more about how you put it all together in your current career and life. Yep. So I uh, graduated, I completed my public health, my master's in public health from the U University of South Florida. That's where I live now. It's it's close to Tampa. USF, what up? Yeah, USF, go Bulls. And um, I also completed my um, uh, CPH, which is a you know certificate as a professional in public health. And I also did a graduate certificate in infection control and prevention. So would you recommend a public health for those wanting to go into healthcare? However, do not have the inclination towards clinician stuff yes absolutely and public health is so so huge it's vast it's humongous so um you know there's a movement called what is public health when you know we there there was a big campaign there i want to say it was about four or five years ago and there's so many sectors you can go into policy you can go into um you know management. global health management absolutely Epi. law exactly epidemiology Urban biostatistics planning. oh my gosh international it's, it's huge everything. So everything there's there's so much opportunity in public health um what i did was global health practice because i have so much international experience. I was recently in Australia as well for research. So really, it helped me connect all my Australia. experiences. Australia. Yeah, you know, you got listeners on in Australia. Oh, good. Well, and shout out to sh Aussie listeners then. Shout out to MacLace and Minto and Africa and everyone. Oh, yeah. So on that note, it's been, it's, it's, we're having a lot of fun. Let's yes. take our final break and we'll come back and uh, find out a little bit more about, you know, outside of the wards. Cool. I got no rules, I count them. 
And we're back to the Nerd Girl Podcast. I'm your host, at DocDrivingCon. Today's episode, Health and Life with Dr. Noor U.S. Health. Before the break, we were chatting with Dr. Noor about her transition from a clinical setting in Bangladesh in medicine to bridging that with public health internationally, bringing those talents to South Beach, and now completing her master's in public health to have your current work, your page, your global health advisor, you're certified in public health, you have all these official degrees and you know experiences. Tell us about your Instagram page now and your current work. How, how are you tying it all in? Yeah, so my current work, um, again, I do health insurance advising for self-employed professionals. Um, and I, I use my medical background to specialize in medically underwritten policies. And this is, I, I feel, something that not a lot of people know about. Um, they know about the healthcare marketplace, about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you go to healthcare.gov and you shop for your plans. But there's private plans out there such as... Um, you know, medically underwritten policies, which may be a better fit for some people. So I use my clinical background to evaluate people to see if they'd be a good fit for something like that. And I use my knowledge and understanding of global health systems um, to really advise, you know, professionals on the best health plan for them. It's so important. You got clinical. Yeah. You got wellness. Yep. You got healthcare access. Yes. All three things covered. You're a Queens girl. You yeah. sound like it. The hell yeah. took you out to Tampa. So for all the <laughs> listeners, um, while you know you've grown up as my cousin, when I was finishing medical school around like 2007 at SUNY Downstate, you were probably in the middle of medical school or somewhere. Just you know, starting like, out. Yeah, just, just graduating. Just starting. And I think a few years later, I came to realize that you had gotten married to someone from, you know, from my own childhood, and it, it became such a small world to, yeah. to know that, hey, one of my best friends from childhood ended up growing up and, you know, connecting with my cousin, and now you guys are married. So yeah. tell us about life in New York. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what took you guys back to Florida, what roots you know, your husband has there. He's from freaking Bay Ridge. Yeah, Bay Ridge Ripon. Yeah, I know. Shout out to my husband, who's awesome, by the way. Yeah. Um, so we decided to move down to Florida. Uh, my in-laws live there. My husband bought his uh, parents a home to retire in about eight years ago. And when we decided we wanted to have a family, we wanted to kind of settle down and grow our roots, we made the decision to move closer to them as they were getting older, we want to be good caregivers. So your in-laws, uncle and auntie, Yes. you know, they've, They've uh, held it down. They've had a small business in yeah. Brooklyn and Bay Ridge That's for like right. 30 years, raised a family. So around their retirement for all the South Asians listening, it's common in our culture to help take care of our folks and whether it's like helping make sure just to look out for them. Yeah, And absolutely. then just help them with their retirement, help them with the move and look over that. So you guys went down to Tampa. Mm-hmm. What was that culture shock like? I mean, that must have been worse than moving back to freaking Dangail. You know? I think so. I think so. Yeah. So I thought, I thought you know, living in, in Mirzapur, Dangail and, and riding on the backs of cows was hard. Uh, and then I had to go to Florida and all of a sudden I'm this exotic thing and I'm surrounded by all these Trump supporters in a very red state. And they think, uh, you know, and I don't know how to drive. And they're like, well, you're 26 years old? What do you mean you don't know how to drive? Because people in Florida, they learn how to drive when they're like 14 years old. And your um, husband's from like, he's he's a brown guy, but he's from a conservative neighborhood. Yeah. So he understands a conservative mindset. 
but he's not a conservative himself, no. so he he must have been like comedy for him inside. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it was it was it was ridiculous. It was it was a culture shock for me. There, I had to learn to drive. I had to learn to assimilate. And I think this is um important for a lot of people growing up in New York City. Is when when I was growing up, I thought New York City was was the world. Yeah. I thought New York City was New York. Still is. It still is. Yeah. But then you go down to places like Florida, and you meet all these New Yorkers who come down there to to retire, yeah. and they're like, "Oh, I'm from this part of New York," which I've never heard of because it's yeah. like not New York City. I'm like, "Okay, sure." And they're like, "Where are you from?" We're in talking New York? about five yeah. boroughs. We're talking about Queens, exactly. Astoria, what block, what corner, what apartment? That's I mean, New York. That's my neighbor. Oh shit, yeah. I don't know my neighbor. Exactly. Yet. Yeah. Uh, but then there's so many New Yorkers in Florida, and they call themselves New Yorkers. I'm like, you're not really a New Yorker. Um, so, so that was that was a challenge as well. You know, just learning and understanding like New York City is, I'm is from not New York the world. Too. Then why the fuck you sound like this far? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you guys ever heard a New Yorker sound like a Southerner? They're out there. It's weird. It's like yeah, I'm from New York. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, how far along are you now? Tell us about your pregnancy. Tell us about some of the, also like the culture down in Florida. I mean, you got your in-laws, you guys aren't living in your same place. How are you about, like, tell, tell the viewers a little bit about the pressure of being a South Asian professional woman, yes, because yes. you're clearly, you know, the big, you know, the unspoken topic in the room is like, oh my gosh, how can South Asian women have a career and be a mom too? Yes. Tell us about yes. your experience with that archaic mindset and how you're tackling that you know undo society's you know traditional gender roles yes um and i think especially for women who are um i hate the term overachievers but i want to use it to describe people who have these certain goals and accomplish you know goals that they want to accomplish and not having accomplished them makes them feel under accomplished i'm not expressing this properly but especially for women like us you know who want to please their in-laws and be a you know a good role model in the family as well as excel in their career. So how can you be goal-oriented in your own shit yes. while still, you know, being happy to like keep things happy with your with yes. your family, your overall family structure? That's yeah. right. Yeah. And some of the responsibilities and expectations that come with with that role is, you know, are you spending enough time with your in-laws? Are you, you know, cooking meals at home or are you ordering takeout after, you know, a long day at work? Um, and I really struggle with this until I read a certain book, which I recommend for absolutely everyone. Uh, it's called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Yeah. And it, it's an ancient Toltec, um, you know, principle that's been passed on in generations. And it was a challenge for me to really understand the message. It took me a while, but it's become such a fundamental part of our lives now. You know, my husband and I, we actually have it framed in our house, The Four Agreements. Yeah, he read that shit because I told him, and then it really helped our, our relationship. So Four I remember, agreements. Oh yeah, by Don Miguel Ruiz. Oh yeah. What were the some of the favorite takeaways for you and Mo? So what we learned from that, but we'll, what we had we had different takeaways. Okay. Uh, but but we had different takeaways, and then it affected our relation and our our relationship enhanced significantly from that book as well. Ooh. So in relation to you know roles as a South Asian woman, the biggest thing I learned was to let go of society's norms and expectations and release that fear. So I realized I was so stressed and anxious about pleasing my in-laws, about um, you know meeting these standards and expectations. I wasn't myself. And that made me deeply unhappy. And it's not because your in-laws are bad people. Like, no. Your in-laws are incredibly nice. They're awesome. You know, they love us. They're so great. You're so lucky. It's like, yeah. you're so lucky. They're like, your in-laws are nice, but, but still there's that cultural clash yeah especially like you know like you have 
done all this, you have all these other experiences in your career that you're still see, seeing through. Yeah. So yeah. It's that balance. Yeah. So it wasn't, it, it was like you said, you know, they're great people, but it's this pressure that I put on myself because of that expectation that society has built in uh, that, you know, you have to be X, Y, and Z. My, my husband and I work so much, you know, we come home after like, 12-hour days, and then I feel guilty if I don't call my in-laws and ask how their day went. So that was a stressor on top, that, you know, that that expectation that maybe, oh, I should be calling, and I'm tired as hell, you know, I don't want to talk to anyone after being on the phone for 12 Yo, hours. Yeah, we're about to have some mother-in-law, father-in-law episodes <laughs> on the network podcast. Come through. Yeah. I'm going to have live callers down the block, like, call in with your favorite mother-in-law episode. That's and, a great idea. You know. That's a great idea. So, yeah, Four Agreements really taught me to let go of those fears and release those expectations from society, and then that really helped me you know really calm down and become stress-free that what I'm doing is great you know I'm, I'm balancing my life I'm balancing my family um, and one of the ways I, I like to do that is compartmentalize it doesn't sound um, like a positive word at the moment but what I mean by that is you know when I'm at work I'm working I don't think about family I don't think about expectations I am for all about my team all about my work I give my hundred percent it's my favorite word. I don't know why you're even pushing it. Go on. Okay, good, good. And when, when I'm home, I unplug completely. Boom. So no phones at the dinner table, no phones, Ooh. period. Ooh. None at all. So if, if my team oh, trying to shit. reach me, I know, I tell them, like, I'm sorry, guys. If you're going to try to reach me, you can't. If I'm home, Phones I don't know where my phone is. Okay. Exactly. I don't even know where it is. Um, so definitely unplugging and, and compartmentalizing that. Um, my husband travels a lot for work, but he yeah. always tries to be home on the weekends. So when he's traveling, I don't bother him because he's the same way. He's 100% about his work. When he's home, he's all about me. He's giving yeah, me Yeah, he's like, he, he likes to work hard, but when you get to hang out with him and you don't have work on the way, oh my God, it's a riot. <laughs> so before we leave, where can we find you? <laughs> we are going to be visiting you um, yeah. in a few weeks down in, uh, you know, down in Tampa. Can't wait to continue this fun. conversation. Maybe we'll carry it back to our IGTV yep. on the Notable Podcast. So where can we find you and any final messages for our listeners on the Know to Grow podcast? Yes. Your fellow listeners. I know, exactly. I'm a listener to you. I'm a huge fan. So yeah, you guys can find me on Instagram or Twitter. The handle is the same for both. That's Dr. Noor U.S. Health, D-R-N-O-O-R-U-S-H-E-A-L-T-H. Uh, and on my Instagram, I have a video series, which I recently started. It's called hashtag Ask Dr. Noor, where you guys can submit questions about health, wellness, health insurance, open enrollment, which is coming up. It's a huge time of the year. Um, and I answer that one question every Wednesday. So you guys can follow that and catch up with me there. Dr. Noor, my little cousin, Boy Shaki. It's yeah. been such a pleasure. My fellow Bronx Science alum. Hell yeah. Uh, cousin from Queens. I was telling Nipa the story of... Your and my, you know, connectivity since you and I grew up in various parts of the world throughout our lives and just remembering like it was like 2002, 2003, I was like coming back home from med school and I think you were like in junior high and I, I came home one day and it was like one in the morning and I was about to go to bed. I was like, what are you? Oh, hey, what's up? What are you doing here? And you're like, yeah, I'm getting ready for Sahari. I'm going to be fasting tomorrow. And here I am, like, coming back, like, I was like, oh, that's right. Oh, let me give you some company. And then, <laughs> and then you know, from there, you know, obviously, we've had so many fun overlaps since then. And my, my kids love spending time with you. It was yeah. one of their favorite foopies. So I can't wait for our trip to Tampa. Yeah, it's going to be so much fun. all of the listeners, thank you for joining us for this very, very special episode on health and life with Dr. Noor U.S. Health. We are on episode number 15 through 20 right now. We're in that phase of it. So 
for all of our listeners, now's that time where you can start sharing with your friends. We're about more than 500, 600 downloads. We have uh, you know dozens of active listeners, but if you are on, if you're listening on Apple iTunes, please give us those five-star reviews. Hit up the comments. If you are listening on Spotify, hit up the share button and send it to your favorite and largest group chat and be like, yo, this is my favorite episode. Check this out. We're really going to be picking up our promotional marketing in the next few weeks to months. So I can't wait to catch you out there on social media. And thank you for joining us in Notagrow. And until next time, always remember to pay it forward.